In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. May God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajilfawajah. Brothers, sisters, viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we are in the series that has to do with the afterlife. Uh, and today, inshallah, we're about to start the next subtopic uh, and perhaps what will be around three lectures uh, to continue the, the subtopic that we began, which is providing the arguments for the afterlife. This time, looking at it from the angle of the Holy Quran. So as a quick recap, until now, we established the importance of the topic of the afterlife, the importance of the topic in itself, as well as for having a com com complete, uh, a complete um, worldview. Secondly, we also. So we have a small Function key? Uh, function Okay. 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 Okay.
أو خلاص رجع على الدوكة نو ما قدرت افتح الباب انا بالي عندي مفتاح بس مفتاح بس لهي الباب اي لا نفتح بال اوكي هذا بس اسوي له خلص توكله لا تسمحوا لهم راح يفيد حتى In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Brothers, sisters, and viewers, once again, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this latest uh, in our series of lectures on the topic of the afterlife. Um, maybe very quickly a recap on where we left off so that we continue in a logical sequence. Um, as we said, we've established until now the importance of the topic of the afterlife uh, in order to have a complete worldview. That's the question that allows us to give direction to our actions and orientation to our life knowing that we are headed in a certain direction and that there is something that happens after we die and that death is not going to be the ultimate end for us human beings. The second thing that we established by now is that human beings are more than just these bodies. There is a component in our being that is immaterial, that we do not see, but we know by our direct experience of it that it's there. This is what we usually refer to as the soul, but in reality, this is what gives us the unity of our identity. And this is also what gives us our true identity, who we truly are. And we can also refer to it as our mind. And we directly experience it when we are aware of our own consciousness and we directly experience it when we are aware of our own free will. And at the same time, we also saw the alternative, which is those who want to adopt a more or a purely materialist point of view or worldview, they are stuck with a type of existence for human beings that does not include free will, that does not include true consciousness. Those things are considered illusions, tricks that are played on us by our genes or you know, the biochemical reactions in our brains, for instance. And this left us with two big questions. And we kind of left those questions parked for now. Inshallah, we'll get back to them eventually. One of those questions is, has to do with the topic of finding meaning 
in a life where there is nothing beyond this body. And so when we reach death, when this body reaches death, and if you believe that there is nothing that exists after that point, everything ceases for you, what kind of meaning can you still give to your life? And what kind of purpose can you still give to your life? And we didn't explore, you know, where we can go with that. We just left it at that. We touched on it. And the second question that we were left with, and again, we did not explore, is the question of morality or an ethical system. If you do not think that anything happens after you die, and that death equals non-existence, and that's it, are you really going to live the same type of moral life, ethical life, as someone who believes that there is a reward and a punishment and something that happens after you die that is directly related to the manner in which you conducted yourself in this world. And again, we did not go into details of exploring where that may take us. We left those questions, but those are two big questions that are going to face anyone who wants to adopt the more materialist point of view. So with all of that said, we now came back to the topic of the afterlife or the resurrection to see what kind of evidence, what kind of arguments we can present, not only for the possibility, as we saw, that there is an afterlife, that there might be an afterlife, that it's logical to think that there could be an afterlife, but evidence and arguments for the necessity of the afterlife. Not only that it is possible, but that it is necessary, that there must be an afterlife. And we said that there are different categories of arguments and proofs that we can present for this. So we proceeded to present two of them that are, we started with the rational proofs, the logical proofs. And we only presented two of them, but they are two important ones. And they are built on things that we have already said and well-established in the past. The first one has to do with the belief that if this world is created by a wise creator, a creator who does not act without purpose, a creator who always acts with purpose, with finality, with intention, then therefore there necessarily needs to be an afterlife. And we presented different versions or variants of this argument, saying, for instance, that when we look within ourselves and we see the faculties that we have and the desires we have, we see that they could never be fully fulfilled here. We could never reach our full potential and our full perfection in this world. So it would be kind of aimless or without purpose for God to give us these desires and these intentions and these you know, wants and needs without giving us a way to fulfill them perfectly and fully. And this is only possible in another world, not this one. That was one, one variant or one version of the argument. And then we proceeded to present a second rational argument for the necessity of the afterlife. This one was based on divine justice. We said that if we look at the world in which we live, we look at the 
injustice and the oppression and the tyranny and unfairness of this world. And at the same time, believe that there is a just creator who designed all of this. And we see that there is a direct contradiction between his act, his creation, and the state of this world. And the only way to resolve this is by saying that there needs to be another world that is directly related to this one. And taken together, they allow us to reestablish the divine justice, which we established earlier out of logical or rational necessity. So for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be just, there needs to be another world where that justice is going to be clearly manifested. We're going to experience it and see it in front of us in a very different way from what we're witnessing or experiencing in this world that is full of oppression and injustice and unfairness. And again, we presented different variants of that argument, so we're not going to go to repeat that. But until now, that's what we've covered. So inshallah, until now, things are clear. And we want to proceed with the next arguments to establish clearly the necessity of the resurrection. Now, this set of arguments or the next set of points is going to be based on the Holy Quran. So today we're going to start looking at what the Holy Quran says about the possibility slash necessity of the afterlife. We could very quickly and easily just go and take a few verses of the Quran and say, this is what the Holy Quran says, end of story. But when we began this whole topic, we said that the afterlife, the theme of the afterlife in the Holy Quran is at least as important as the theme of Tawheed. And there are somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 if not more, verses of the Qur'an that talk about the afterlife. So, first points, first point to keep in mind is we're certainly not going to cover the topic in depth here. That's one. Two, there's probably more for us to do than just mention a few verses of the Qur'an that just say there is an afterlife. If the whole Qur'an is spending this much time presenting it, perhaps there's a story. So what I've tried to do, and this is why we're going to need a couple of lectures for this, is to look at the arguments about the afterlife presented by the Holy Quran, but told as though they are a story. There is a story to be told here. So now I'm going to give you the outline of that story so that we don't lose track of where we are. And today we're going to start it. But it's going to take two to three lectures to get through the entire story. But so long as this is kept in mind that I think it's simple enough, inshallah, the story makes sense and we can follow along. And this is to bring us back to a point that we presented a few times by now. And that is when we look at the Holy Quran, sometimes we want to look at it only as a scriptural proof. Scriptural in the sense that when you say there is a proof for anything, evidence for anything, an argument for anything, you always have to ask, you always have to wonder, what gives the power, what gives the legitimacy, what gives the validity, the strength of that argument? Where does it come from? 
So when you have a rational argument, it's coming from reason. So everything depends on what you consider to be legitimate sources of argumentation. Everybody should agree that logic is a valid source or reason is a valid source of argumentation. And that's why we rely a lot on it. But we've also established that the Holy Quran, revelation from God, prophethood is a legitimate source. So you may have a prophet come to you, an imam come to you, the Holy Quran come to you and say, do this. And the reason you do it is just because it said do this. And that's valid. If you've established that as a valid source, which we have done. So when we look at the Holy Quran, we could look at times when it talks about the afterlife, resurrection, and what happens there as a scriptural proof, as a proof that is a scripture that says. And because you believe in that scripture, you believe in what it says. So someone who does not believe in that scripture is not going to consider that a valid argument. The Holy Quran, sometimes, or in a lot of times, the Holy Quran actually uses a rational style of argumentation. It does not always say, it does sometimes, but not always. It doesn't always say, you have to do just because I said so, and I am the Holy Quran. Sometimes it's going to do that. And we're going to see that in the argumentation for the afterlife. But in a lot of cases, the Holy Quran actually presents a logical or rational argument. So when it presents a rational argument, we can explore it and we can study it from reason. We can study it as a rational or logical argument, not as a scriptural argument. That scriptural aspect becomes secondary. That's on top of the fact that there is a logic to it. And let's look at the logic. So we're going to do both. But what I want you to do, and this is the story part, what I want you to do is to See how the Holy Quran, if we take all of these verses and we put them in categories, you're going to see that the Holy Quran is going to progress with you, with humanity, in establishing the necessity of the afterlife. It doesn't just say there's an afterlife. And this is what we're trying to do here. So we're going to say the verses of the Quran that talk about the afterlife and now we're talking about is there an afterlife or not? Not the details of the afterlife once we're there. Inshallah, this is going to come in later lectures. We're not there yet. Now we're just trying to establish that there indeed is an afterlife. First, we're going to see that the Holy Quran is going to attack a main point. And it always does this. And we're going to see that. When it comes to an important topic, the Holy Quran starts by saying, I'm going to give you my proof and you're going to give me your proof for our claim. And let the best proof win. Based on reason, based on logic. If you have a proof, show me your proof. If you don't have a proof for a belief, if you don't have a proof for a position, especially for something that's important, it's not legitimate. I can't deal with you as a human being if you're not going to provide a rational, logical, well-argued reason 
or what you believe in or what you're doing. Point number one. Point number two. So the Holy Quran starts by saying, what's the best you got? For those who want to say there is no afterlife, those who want to reject, let's start with, give me your proof. You don't want to believe in resurrection. You don't want to believe in the afterlife. What's your proof for this? That's one. Two. The most that anyone can say is, I don't have proof, but this whole idea of coming back to another existence after I've been completely annihilated and so on and so forth, just doesn't seem very probable. Just doesn't seem like something that could happen. So the Holy Quran proceeds, this is step two in the story, in the argumentation story. The Holy Quran presents itself, presents examples of phenomena, of events that should take the improbability away. So if you're thinking that the best you got, I don't have any arguments that there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. The most I could say is it's not very likely. So the Holy Quran, step two, is going to say, consider these examples. And once you've actually looked at them closely, do you still think that it's not likely? That's step two. Then step three, the Holy Quran says, you had a position. I ask you for proof. You don't have any. I will give you that you may say it's unlikely. So I gave you examples to show you that, in fact, it's very likely. You may still have some objections. You may still have some unanswered questions. So let me answer those questions for you. All of that done. Now we're going to move. So the Quran was on the defensive until now. It completely basically said, okay, let's see what you got. Let's empty your pockets. Is this all? That's all you're, you're done? You have no more arguments, no more proofs, you're done? Okay, now I'm going to go on the attack. This is where the Holy Quran is going to start presenting its own proofs. So it's going to present rational arguments and it's going to add a scriptural or an argument from revelation. Okay? So this is going to be how we're going to follow the verses of the Quran and we're going to put them in categories. So today, inshallah, we're going to start with the first part of the story. And next time, inshallah, we meet, we can go to maybe, we'll see how much time we have and how much we can cover. So if you notice, the beginning, the first three points, so there is no proof. The Quran is basically saying you have no proof that there is no afterlife. When it says, and here is a whole lot of phenomena that if you were to study them and explore them and reflect on them, you would see that the afterlife is very likely. You only think it's unlikely because of the way you're thinking about it, but we're going to keep giving you these reminders and examples that will bring you back to see how likely this is. And three, I'm going to answer any objections you may have at this point. So if you look at all of this, you see that the Holy Quran is still in the point at this point in establishing that the afterlife is logical and possible, probable, right? It's only when it itself starts presenting its own arguments. Oh, here we start seeing that, no, no, 
it starts becoming necessary, okay? So we have to distinguish between the strength of the arguments being presented, and they build on each other, of course. But we'll see at the end that, no, no, it's not only that it's possible, it's there is no doubt that it will happen and it must happen. Otherwise, this world doesn't make sense. That's where we're gonna end up at the end of this story. So inshallah, with this in mind, and for anyone following, that you have to follow through two to three lectures, inshallah, and then you get this line of argumentation presented from the Holy Quran. So every time there is an important topic, an important position that a human being is taking, the Holy Quran begins by saying, you need proof, no matter what it is. The more important, the more the proof needs to be solid. Just because I feel like it, or I saw my parents do it, or this is what my people believe in, not enough. You need your convincing proof. Provide your proof, show me that you've thought about this, we've given you reason, we've given you logic, you've thought about this, and you've reached a convincing conclusion. So this is established for, as we said, everything that the Holy Quran considers important. And we can present two big reasons, two important reasons for this. The first one is, this is the way you establish truth. Very simple. Secondly, this is how you distinguish truth from non-truth. Because sometimes it may be murky. Someone else has a different claim than yours. How do we reach a conclusion? For the Holy Quran, it's very important to go after the truth. So to find the truth, the only way to do it is by you study my argumentation and my evidence, and I study yours. So this becomes the, 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 the reasons we're not going to spend more time on. So the claim of these verses of the Quran, and this whole category of verses, we're going to look at a few of them. The claim here is, in a lot of cases, the Quran says there are a lot of people throughout history, human beings, who take positions about important things, and they have no knowledge about them. They have no logic or reason. They were not given any scripture about them. So bottom line, they have no convincing reason a respectable reason for holding that position. In other words, they're not acting like human beings. There's something lacking. The Quran says, I can't respect this. How, how do you want me to deal with you? If you want to engage with me, we need to have some common ground, some common rules. And for the Holy Quran, it's you need to present convincing arguments for your position. So here are three quick verses of the Quran that talk about examples to show the importance of having convincing arguments from the point of view of the Holy Quran. In 2.1.11 it says, say produce your evidence should you be truthful. This is the general rule throughout the Holy Quran. In another verse 21.24 it says, or have they taken gods besides him? So here we start getting into the specific details, specific cases. The first one was just a generic rule. So now we're talking about which gods do you worship, one or more, so on and so forth. Say, bring your evidence. This is a reminder to those who are with me and a reminder from those who, were, who went before me. Rather, most of them do not know the truth, and so they turn away. 
There's no reason to believe what they believe. Okay? And another verse is he who originates the creation. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is he who originates the creation. Then he will bring it back. And who provides for you from the sky and the earth. What is there a God besides Allah? Say, bring your evidence should you be truthful. So for any important claim, you need to provide evidence. Now, if we look at the types of specific cases the Holy Quran talks about, I found about 15 to 20 sets of verses that talk about specific cases like those. Examples. When it talks about ascribing partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they claim, for instance, that Allah has a wife or a son or daughters and so on and so forth as, you know, the Arabs and Christians and, you know, the Jews and so on and so forth believed at different points. So every time the Quran says, bring your proof for what you're claiming. What is your proof? We have cases in the Quran where it talks about certain ideas and beliefs they had, especially the Arabs to whom the Holy Prophet was sent about the jinn and their relationship to God and who they are. Same thing with the angels or what the jinn can do with human beings. The Holy Quran tells them, what's your proof for this? You need to present some proof. The Holy Quran talks about certain rules or laws that they had made up for themselves. Again, the Quran says, what was your proof for this? You need some evidence. You can't just make up rules. We're going to eat this. We're not going to eat that. Certain people in our community are allowed to eat this, but others are not allowed. And they're only allowed to eat as the Holy Quran gives examples of this. So, and it talks about different kinds of beliefs. Again, so freedom of will is a big one. And, you know, for those of you who are following in, in Muharram, we talked about how some people misunderstand where good and evil come from. Is it from me or from God or from the prophet? Some people think that some people are kind of cursed and uh, they're superstitious around it, so on and so forth. Again, the Holy Quran is always saying, before you believe, find your convincing proof. Then, we also have, when the Holy Quran says there are people who follow their own desires. Quran says that's not enough. You need to have proof. Even to follow your own desires, show me why this is a rational position for someone to say, I'm just going to do what I feel like. You need a proof for that. What allows you to do that? Crucifying the Messiah. The Holy Quran says they claimed that they crucified Prophet Jesus. It says, bring your proof. Naming of the angels as females, as mentioned in the Quran. The Arabs used to refer to the angels with female names. And they would, in other words, in other places in the Quran say that these are the daughters of Allah or the daughters of the gods, so on and so forth. Again, the Quran says, bring your proofs. When the Quran talks about how Pharaoh denied when Musa السلام, was sent to him and he denied Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his answer, he says, well, bring your proof for this denial. Your rejection needs to be backed by some evidence. What's your evidence for this? He just says, I don't like your claim. I don't feel like believing what you're saying. So here are some quick examples. The first one, 6.148, says the polytheists, the mushrikeen say, had Allah wished, Allah, we would not have ascribed any partners to him, nor 
our fathers, nor would we have forbidden anything. You see, now we're talking about belief in other gods, and we're talking about the rules that they would make up. They're basically saying, you know, if Allah wished, he would have done things differently. So no freedom of will. If things are happening, it's because God intended this to happen this way. Those who were before them had denied likewise until they tasted our punishment. Say, do you have any knowledge or any revealed knowledge that you can produce before us? So do you have any knowledge for this? Or you're just making up stuff as you go along? You follow nothing but conjectures and you do nothing but lie or make stuff up. In another verse, 3028, it says, rather the wrongdoers follow their own desires without any knowledge. Again, there's no convincing argumentation. Do you not see, 3120, do you not see that Allah has disposed for you whatever there is in the heavens and whatever there is in the earth, and he has showered upon you his blessings, the outward and the inward? Yet among the people are those who dispute concerning Allah without any knowledge or guidance or an illuminating scripture. So here you have some of the proofs that the Qur'an would say, at least I would respect your claim and we could have a discussion because you're saying that this is something that was mentioned in a previous scripture or this is something based on solid knowledge or solid reason. The Qur'an says, but these people are arguing against what you're saying without any foundation. None of these things, none of these elements are present in their rationale. <clears throat> Here are two, uh, a couple of verses in, in chapter 53, verses 27, uh, 28. Indeed, those who do not believe in the hereafter give female names to the angels. They do not have any knowledge of that. They follow nothing but conjecture or guesswork. And surely conjecture does not avail or is of no value against the truth at all. Okay? So it's all made up stuff. Now, when we come to specifically to the topic of the afterlife, we see the same logic applied by the Holy Prophet. So here in one verse, so 45:24, it says, and they say there is nothing but the life of this world. That's a claim. There is nothing but the life of this world. So this is the materialism we were talking about. We die and we come to life and nothing destroys us but time. But they do not have any knowledge of that. They only make conjectures. So at least today, there are people who are trying to build some sort of rationale around it. And I don't know to what extent we, we showed that the rationale is very weak, it's not holding. But generally speaking, the whole Quran is saying those people believed when they believed without any foundation. And here there's an interesting wording in this verse. It says, we die and we come to life. There's a lot of people who wonder why the Holy Quran uses this, this line, this uh, construction or this wording, that they die before they come to life. Namutu wa nahya, as the, the Arabic said. So why doesn't he say, the Holy Quran says the opposite? And here, very quickly, there are a few uh, interpretations to this. One, in, in certain commentaries, they say, in this Arabic construction, in this wording, the Holy Quran is not uh, listing things in a, in a chronological order. It's not one thing after the other. It's just listing items. Okay? So it could be more stylistic and so on. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this is happening in time, that we die and then we are 
they come to life. That's one. Secondly, or a second interpretation to this, they say that we die and the next generations come. So as human beings, you know, there are people who die and others follow them and so on and so forth. So that's, that's a solid and, and good uh, commentary as well. Uh, another interpretation to this is some of them actually believed in reincarnation. So they say we die and then we are born again and then we die again and then we're born again. And inshallah, we're, when we're going to get to the objections part, as we said, the Holy Quran answers some objections, we're going to beef them up. So even more than what the Holy Quran addresses in terms of objections, with all the other objections that we may come up with related to the topic of you know, resurrection and the afterlife, and we're going to address uh, uh, reincarnation, because usually it's a, it's a topic that draws a lot of attention and a lot of interest. It's very popular these days. Another interpretation to this, so why, the, why does the Holy Quran say that they're dying and then they're coming to life here? They say that uh, the bodies, the bodies are coming to life. So they were nothing and then they become something in the sense of becoming alive. They did not have life and then they get life. And then the last one is more symbolic. So they say, you know, we die and then we remain alive through our reputation, through our good name, through the, the works that we leave behind and so on and so forth. Anyways, that's in case you're wondering. Sometimes we, we wonder why the Holy Quran uses uh, terms in a certain way or a certain wording. A second verse that talks about this. So again, applying the logic of what is your proof for what you claim regarding the afterlife now specifically. We did not create the sky and the earth and whatever is between them in vain. That is the conjecture or the assumption or the guesswork of the disbelievers. So woe to the disbelievers from the fire. So there is this, this is a, a, a double argument here, and we're going to come back to it later too. The third, in the third uh, verse that we have here, it says, and when it was said to those people, when it was said, Allah's promise is indeed true. And there is no doubt about the hour, so the afterlife, the day of judgment. You said, we do not know what the hour is. We know nothing beyond conjectures and we do not possess any certainty. Okay, and we're going to come back to that again. You see this in different verses of the Quran where people claim that, you know, you're not providing enough evidence, so I don't know. Therefore, I'm going to act as though it's not going to happen. And this is often repeated in the case of believing in God too. An atheist will say, for instance, I'm not convinced with what you have said with the evidence you have provided for the existence of God. So therefore, I'm going to live as though he doesn't exist until you convince me otherwise. And we've talked about this enough to say, well, the risk alone is enough for you to live as though he does exist. But, you know, if you don't, it's, you're lacking logic. Your logic is flawed, not mine. There's no risk in mine. I'm, I'm not losing out on anything. You're the one losing out on something, if what I'm claiming is true. Any case. The last verse we have here, but as for him who is given his record or his book. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about the people after they have been judged on the, in the afterlife, the day of judgment. As for him who is given his record or has given his book from behind his back. So this is a symbol. So those who are given their book in their right hand, it's because they did good. Because the Arabs considered the right to be success and strength and so on and so forth. So these people are giving their book from behind their back. He shall cry for annihilation. Like, I wish I did not exist now that I know he's regretting how he lived. 
and enter a blazing fire to burn therein. Indeed, he used to be arrogantly joyful among his people. Indeed, he thought. Here he thought in the sense that he was not sure. He just had a, a, a probability. He thought that he would never return. He thought that there's a probability that he never goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He never goes back to an afterlife. In other words, he was not certain. There was a probability that he doesn't go back. Therefore, he lived as though there is no afterlife. So here, the Holy Quran saying wrong logic. You can't do that. We continue with the topic of what the Quran, how the Holy Quran deals with this. So now we're saying there are people who have tried to address a very important topic, a very crucial topic for their lives. It's going to determine how you're supposed to live. And yet those people, because they consider it not likely, without any proof, they decided to live as though there is no afterlife. So one may wonder, how could they, with their logic and with their reason, accept it for themselves? How do they allow themselves to have this weak logic or lack of logic about something so important, such as your eternal you know, happiness or damnation? So the whole Quran itself gives us reasons why someone may end up there. The first one, the first reason the Holy Quran gives us is that they have certain desires. They want to live in a certain way. And by accepting the arguments, by accepting the possibility that there is an afterlife, you can't live freely based entirely on your desires. You can't live in any way, shape, or form you want. You have to live in a restricted way. Because now you know there is an afterlife. So you don't even open that door. You close off that door so that you continue to live however you feel like living. That's one. So the Holy Quran says, so that's if you wonder, is it true that these people are really not seeing the truth or they, their logic is so flawed? Well, the Quran here is saying, it's not that their logic is flawed. It's because they know that if they go down that path, it means they can't live according to their desires entirely. So they're not going to go there. They're going to close the door and say, there is no afterlife. End of story. I'm not even going to consider any good arguments you may have. That's one. The second reason the Holy Quran gives us is that, and this one is a dangerous one. This one is that the Holy Quran says, as a result of their sins, as a result of being constantly exposed to the wrong, to the point where you become desensitized. You're no longer sensitive to this is true, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false, this is good, this is bad. You lose that sensitivity because you're so exposed to the wrong that now it starts to accumulate as the Holy Quran says in its beautiful imagery, powerful imagery, says this is going to accumulate over the heart and darken it. And then the heart is unable to recognize truth from falsehood. And so even if the truth is right in front of you, you're not going to accept it. And this is, of course, not the original state of any human being. This is once you've been so stubborn and so corrupt and so perverted for so long, you've rejected the truth for so long 
that you start sliding down that path. So we have both verses of the Quran and groups of verses of the Quran. And the second one, the Quran basically says this turns into their beliefs. So initially, you would have said, this is not my belief. I know this is right and this is wrong. I'm still going to do the wrong, but I know it's wrong. After a while of this this continues, this becomes your belief. That which you considered wrong is now going to be, that's the right thing to do. So this is where it flips completely. Your actions are going to flip your belief system. And this is very dangerous. And there's this is a very big, deep topic that inshallah we're going to talk about when we talk more about the ethical and moral dimensions. But this is related directly to the topic of the worldview and how it directs your actions. We haven't really talked about the other way around. Can actions also impact the beliefs? Yes, they can. If you're exposed enough or you do something enough, then it's going to have an impact on your beliefs. And this opens a whole door that we're not going to get into right now, just to to draw attention to it. If you spend enough time reading the Holy Quran, understanding the spirit of our religion, there's a lot of attention put on clearly distinguishing truth and falsehood in the manner in which you conduct yourself, even socially. Sometimes the Holy Quran says, you know, distance yourself, stay away from certain people, don't engage with them, and so on and so forth. Why? It never wants to put you in a position where down the road, truth and falsehood starts to get mixed up for you. If you're ever in that position, it means you've started to slide a little too far. You need to back off. This is where sometimes, for instance, you'll see our scholars or you're directly told, don't read certain books, don't watch certain things, don't listen to certain speakers. You might think that you have the confidence and the strength to listen or read or be exposed to certain thoughts or be around certain people, but you may not. What's the guarantee that this is not going to slowly erode at your belief system? That which was a clear truth to you, maybe after 100 hours, you know, or after 10 books or, or, or of arguments, you're going to start doubting. And that doubt becomes real questions. And that questioning becomes a rejection of that which by nature and by intuition you knew to be true. You were guided. You were on the right path. So you went wrong about asking your questions and what you allowed yourself to be exposed to. Okay? In any case. So this is this opens a whole door. You know, sometimes we say we want to... I try to give you the keys so that you can go and, and, and do that thinking on your own. This is one of those keys. The importance that the religion that we have gives to always keeping a very clear distinction between truth and falsehood. And when that starts to become blurry, you need to really take a good close look at yourself and see, what am I doing here? Should I be, should I continue to hang with those type of people? Should I continue to be exposing myself to these, this kind of literature or this kind of thinking or that kind of 
whatever, scholar and, and documentary, whatever it may be, that you know is influencing you. And whether you like it or not, you're always under the influence, okay? In any case, so that was a kind of a between two brackets here. So let's look at the verses. As we said, the Holy Quran clearly says, these are two big reasons why people may, surprisingly to someone who thinks they are guided like us, inshallah, that this is very clear logic. Why would you build your entire belief system or build your entire life when you have no reason to reject the afterlife, as the Holy Quran just showed me? And the Quran gave two the, these two reasons. So it says in certain verses, then the end result of those who committed misdeeds, so they continued to con con continuously commit misdeeds until their, their end result was that they denied the signs of Allah. That was not their original state. The end state, as they continue to do misdeeds, is that they denied the signs of Allah and because they used to deride or mock them. So here's where you see it's the stubbornness. It's the rejection of something that you know to be true that can lead to that very dangerous path where you start mixing up truth and falsehood. Woe on that day to the deniers, those who deny the day of retribution, and none denies it except every sinful transgressor. This is the key. The Quran says those who deny the day, the afterlife, the day of judgment, no one is going to deny it except someone who's basically drowning in their sins. Every sinful transgressor. When our signs are recited to him, he says, myths of the ancients. No, indeed, rather, rust or filth has accumulated on their hearts from what they used to earn. No, indeed, they will truly be screamed off from their Lord on that day. Okay. And then, as we said, they may refuse to let go of those beliefs for any reason that you present to them, regardless of how strong your logic is. They're going to say, no matter what you tell me, I'm not, I'm never going to believe. This is where you see that, okay, this is not a matter of being of uh, having a belief that is built on any logic or reason. And those who, you know, if you follow the new atheists, there's a lot of that going on. You know, people like Richard Dawkins and others, they openly say, you know, they tell him, what would you need to believe in God? He says, I need a miracle. So, well, what if a miracle happened in front of you right now? He's like, well, I'd probably find a way to explain it scientifically and you know, it's okay. So in other words, you will never believe. See, the verse says, they have sworn by Allah with solemn oaths that Allah will not resurrect those who die. No matter what you're going to say or bring as proof, those people have decided that they're not going to believe that there's something like, and the reason, as we said, is because this is going to force them to live in a different way and they're not interested. Yes, indeed, it is a pro promise binding upon him, but most people do not know. And we're going to come to the topic of the promise, the divine promise. So, as we saw until now, there is no argument for not believing in the afterlife. That's one. Two, the most that could be said, and we're going to get into the answer, the Quranic answer to this, inshallah, the most that could be said is that it is unlikely. There is no argument 
there is no proof, there is no evidence that there is, therefore, that the conclusion would be, therefore, there is no afterlife. No one has ever and will ever provide that as an evidence or argument. So what, what's the most, logically, what's the most that could be said? What's the strongest point? The claim is, this is the whole Quran is recognizing this. The claim is, well, it's very unlikely. It's very improbable. It's not impossible, but it's very unlikely. Okay? So this is what we've established until now. So they say, what? When we have become bones and dust, shall we really be raised in a new creation? Say, should you be stones or iron? Or a creation more fantastic or more difficult to resurrect? To your minds, they will say, who will bring us back? Say, he who originated you the first time. So this is where you see that it's all based on the unlikelihood. It is not likely. It's not impossible. But if I were to become bones and the bones become dust, can I really be brought back? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it's not even bones and dust. You can imagine whatever you want. Imagine stones, imagine metal, imagine whatever you want. Whoever created you the first time can bring you back. Is that not a logical argument? So it's all built on the unlikelihood. Another verse, 11.7, it says, It is he who created the heavens and the earth in six days, and his throne was then upon the waters, that he may test you to see which of you is best in conduct. Yet, if you say you will indeed be raised after death, the faithless or the disbelievers will surely say, this is nothing but playing magic. So, is it possible? It's possible, but it's very unlikely. And again, the beginning of the verse was the answer to their objection. Inshallah, we're going to get into that the next time. The last verse here, or the two last verses, one of them will say, so this is a whole story. This is chapter 37, Surah Safat. I invite you to go back and, and read it, those verses. So here the Holy Quran is talking about there are people who are brought to heaven and there are people who are brought to hell. So here it's talking about one of those people who were brought to heaven. So the Quran is putting, creating that imagery where you are now in the afterlife and you're seeing this group of people being brought to heaven. One of those people is talking. So he says, one of them will say, indeed, I had a close companion. I had a best friend who would say, are you really among those who affirm this belief, belief in the afterlife, that when we are dead and have become dust and bones, that we shall indeed be brought to retribution? There's hisab, there's reward and punishment. So are you really of those people? It means his best friend was not of those people. And so, of course, the verses continue. And then they say, it says he started looking around and he saw him in hell. So he made it into heaven. And his best friend was in hell. Okay, and this there's a whole imagery there that is really worth looking at in Surah Al-Safat. So I invite you to go back and read those verses. Indeed, these ones say, so these are the companions of the Holy Prophet. They say, it is nothing but our first death, or it is nothing but a single death. And we shall not be resurrected. Bring our fathers back, should you be truthful. And in some... Commentators here in this verse, they, they say that uh, 
Abu Lahab. Sorry, I don't remember if it's Abu Lahab or Abu Jahl in the, in the narrations here. One of those two, he would tell the Holy Prophet, for us to believe in the afterlife, we have a, a request from you. Uh, they would mention the fourth or higher, fifth grandfather of the Holy Prophet, and they would tell him, he was a really good man. Why don't you bring him back now? And if you do, then we'll believe that there's an afterlife because we saw someone being brought back from the dead. Okay, so it's about the unlikeliness or unlikelihood that this happens. I think with the, the time that we have, we'll stop here. Until now, what we've established is for important topics, including the topic of the afterlife. The Holy Quran always says a human being needs to have a very solid, convincing proof for whatever they believe in. And if your belief is different from that of the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran challenges you and says, present your proof, present your evidence, and I present mine. And so we saw what it does in general in various topics and then how it applies that to the afterlife. Okay? Next, inshallah, next time we meet, we're going to see how the Holy Quran now starts to answer this. So we said there is no proof that anyone can give to say there is no afterlife. The most that could be said is found in these verses and others like them, which is it's unlikely. It's not impossible. We know for sure that there's no proof that there is no afterlife, one. Two, there is no logical impossibility. So what's left? It's unlikely. It's improbable. There is a certain percentage that it might happen, but it's too low. So this is how we're going to see the Holy Quran move into a second category of verses. Those are going to say, you think it's unlikely, but if you look at this and this and this and that, as we're going to see, you're going to see that it's not that unlikely. In fact, this resurrection that you think is so unlikely, it's happening all around you all the time. So if only you studied and thought about this and understood this, then you would understand how easy it is for us to resurrect you in the afterlife. Okay, so this is where we're going, inshallah, the next time, the next series of uh, verses that have to do with this. And then we'll see how the Holy Quran answers potential, possible objections that one may have or questions you may still have after. So you have no evidence. You might think it's just unlikely. So the Quran says, here are some examples of things happening around you that should take the, the low probability away. And you can see that, no, this is happening all the time. You may still have some questions, so let me answer them for you. And then after that, we'll see how the Quran then goes on the attack and starts presenting its own verses and its own arguments for the necessity of the afterlife. So this is all on the defensive, as we said. Okay, so this is the... Uh, the lecture part will stop here for today. Little question for you guys, and including anyone who's with us online. Um, do we take five minutes since these days are the, the days of the birth of the Holy Prophet? Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa is a huge topic of, in the news. 
Do we take five minutes to maybe talk a little bit about that too, so that in addition to everything that we've said, we can also add that to the discussion part if there's anything to discuss or ask questions about. Of course, oh, there are people, okay. Yes, so if anyone is uh, uh, on the uh, sister side, if you have any uh, opinion, please uh, share it. You can text uh, Hajj Abu Abdullah uh, and uh, he can let us know. Or even if you have any questions, concerns, feedback about anything we've said until now, I'll just take five minutes to talk very quickly um, about the Holy Prophet I don't think that the issue is for anyone to talk about the Holy Prophet. The issue is never going to be to try to praise the Holy Prophet or to really explain his status. To do that logically, to do that objectively about any topic, you need to be at a higher level than what you are evaluating to evaluate it properly. And if you can't be at a higher level, like a teacher with a student, for instance, then at least you have to be in close proximity. And if you can't be in close proximity, then you have to kind of be in that general arena, sphere, so that you're able to recognize from afar, between distinguish between people or their levels or their value, their merit, and anything like that. In the case of the Holy Prophet, this, as we believe and from everything we know about the Holy Prophet, this is simply impossible. One, based on the manner in which he lived. and When you study his life, this is very clear. But two, as a believer in the Holy Quran, this is very clear too. When you see how the Holy Quran talks, when you see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the Holy Prophet and how he talks to the Holy Prophet, you start seeing that the Holy Prophet is in a different league. He's not a normal human being like you and I. He has that human dimension, but there is a lot more that takes him into a completely different level. And inshallah, you know, we can organize lectures to talk about that topic in depth. Okay? But from a logical point of view and from a scriptural point of view, when we study the personality of the Holy Prophet, we see that he is beyond the whole idea of us praising him, us trying to say anything that would add anything to him. The example that I can maybe give to talking about the Holy Prophet is like the example of someone who wants to say the Shahada. When you say the Shahada, because this is a lot more obvious, inshallah, I think, Obviously, it does not say anything, does not add anything to God that you attest that he exists, that you attest that God is the only God that exists. It doesn't add anything to him. What does it do? It says something about you, not about God. It says that you are a rational human being. You are a human being and you are determining your worth and your merit, and your logic, and your intelligence, and announcing it by recognizing the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that he is the only God. That doesn't say anything about God, and it doesn't add anything to God. He doesn't need you or the rest of the universe. It does nothing to him. 
This says something about you and it adds something to you. To a lesser degree, this is what we mean when we say, you know, to us, for us to talk about the Holy Prophet, it doesn't add anything to him. We're not doing him any favors. He's not going to increase in rank and so on and so forth. What it says, if you're talking about the Holy Prophet, what it says, if it says anything, it says about you. And to the, the extent to which you are understanding this incredible entity, this incredible human being, and what he was able to bring to humanity. Okay, so that's the first point. The examples that we have, as we said, this is a huge topic. Some examples we have from the Holy Quran when it talks about the Holy Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about him that he was sent as a guidance to humankind. Now remember, this is the God of the universe and the God of all humanity talking. And he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent you as a guidance to humankind. He has sent you as an illuminating lantern. He says that he has sent him as a mercy to the worlds. And this last one is really interesting from all sorts of angles. One of them to me is that this was revealed early in the mission of the Holy Prophet. Imagine the Holy Prophet, one man, with a few weak and few followers in a remote city in the desert, Mecca, at war with his people and those who are follower, followers of him, those who are adherent to what he's presenting, his teachings, they are oppressed, they're running away, they're going to other lands, they're hiding, they're being killed and tortured. It's not really an entity at a world level. He's one man with a few followers and he's presenting some sort of, you know, different vision. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala announces, reveals early that he is sent as a mercy to the worlds. What worlds? Why would this man with a few followers, they're weak and oppressed, why would he be a mercy to the world? And then you really have to fast forward and go through the entire mission of the Holy Prophet, you know, the 23 years. When you reach those couple of last years, when you see that the Holy Prophet, he is, him and his followers are oppressed. Multiple times, Quraysh, his, his clan, his tribe, they tried to kill him. Finally, he escapes. He leaves his hometown of Mecca. And he goes to Medina al-Munawwara. Followers gather around him and he starts re-establishing and building and teaching Islam. And then the years go by and the circumstances change. And now he enters back into the city, his home city of Mecca. When he enters, there are 10, 12,000 soldiers with him. And anyone who would look at him now would say, you know, how things have changed that when he left, he was weak because he had very few followers, they were oppressed, and now he is entering almost like someone who could conquer completely. He's a military leader, he is a political leader, he's a religious leader, extremely powerful, and those people, when he's going back, those people had been at war with him during this entire time. 
doing everything they can to kill him and to kill his followers. One battle after another, one attempt after another, creating alliances, attacking in secret, attacking openly, giving everything they have. And he lost the nearest and dearest to him. He sacrificed everything to preserve this message and this faith and to communicate it to the next generations. And finally, it looked like he was very successful. And he comes back. He has no reason not to display his full strength, especially against those people who attempted in every which way they could to try to kill him. And they killed many of his followers, many of his family members, people like Khadija and Abu Talib, if they died, it was because of them. People like Al-Hamza and others, when you see everything that the Holy Prophet had sacrificed, all at the hands of, hands of Quraysh, and so when he enters, and he is now in his moment of power and might and strength, and some of his, some of his companions, they say, you know, this is the day of destruction and annihilation. This is the day of revenge. This is the day when we're going to get pay them, make them pay back for everything that they have done. And the Holy Prophet tells them, no, this is the day of mercy. This is the day we're going to fully show our mercy. And to me, this is just a glimpse of when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the Holy Prophet and he says very early, he said, you have been sent as a mercy to the world. Maybe it would not have really been understood at that time. When you see it towards the end, you start getting a much better appreciation. And you only really fully appreciate this when you take that full context in mind. Okay, so that's, that's a point. The, the second point that I wanted to take from this is that beyond the Holy Prophet himself, if we look at the context of the world today and everything that's being said and everything that's happening, this is not new that the world in all sorts and shapes of ways attacks the character of the Holy Prophet. If you go through the literature, especially of the Middle Ages, you will see that it was full of constant, regular attacks against the Holy Prophet to sully his reputation, creating all sorts of lies. In fact, this had started from the time when the Holy Prophet was still alive. Quraysh were spreading rumors about him. It did not work in a lot of cases because people knew him. And the moment you encounter him and you are around him, you see that this was all lies. But this had started at that time. And it continued. But when you go to the Middle Ages and you see how, in, you know, to, to say it bluntly and openly, this was an open war at that time between what they considered the Islamic world and the Christian world and how they were dealing with the personality of the Holy Prophet. This was a regular thing for centuries that he was constantly attacked. Today, it's, they would refer to it as a character assassination, right? They, they ruined the reputation through propaganda, lies, whatever you can. You try to ruin the reputation of someone entirely and completely. The end result is you fast forward a few centuries, and we are now today, and you see that the followers of the Holy Prophet have only increased in number. 
and those who understand him have only increased in number, and his reputation is still in growth, and his good name and his followers and his influence in the world is still in growth. It hasn't stopped. It hasn't reduced. It has not shrunk in any way, shape, or form. And this is perhaps the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Sharh when he tells him, and we have elevated your name, or we have raised your name, right? The one point I wanted to add, though, is that while Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that promise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works through the means that he has put in this world. And you and I can become those means. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and we've elevated your reputation or your name, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works through the material means of the world to do that. So for us, we need to do this if we are the lovers of the Holy Prophet and the followers of the Holy Prophet, as we all say we are, and inshallah we are, we need to do two things. The first, unfortunately, is that the majority of us don't really know much about the Holy Prophet. And this is dangerous. The first reason is that we have nothing to say. If someone were to ask us, did this happen? Why did he do that? When did this happen? And what were the reasons? What was the context? We don't know much. That's one. Two, it's dangerous because as we mentioned earlier, and that's, that was the trigger for me to talk about the topic, as you continuously get exposed to these questions, and to these doubts, and to these objections, and these attacks, you may eventually start letting them in. And they start eroding your image of the Holy Prophet, because you're going to say, there's maybe 5%, 10%, 50% chance, this one might be true, this one I keep hearing about it, there must be some truth to it, something here might have happened, and that image of the Holy Prophet starts to get distorted. And that ends up having causing you to have a completely different belief system at the end. In this case, concerning the Holy Prophet and the image you have of him. You need to equip yourself. You need to do your own research. Find out if you are truly a follower of this man, you need to know who he is. You can't just follow someone without knowing who they are and where are they taking you. Why are you following him? What do you know about him? What do you admire about him? What don't you know about him and you need to know more about? Where are your questions? Where are your doubts? Do you know where to find the answers? You need to put some energy and time and effort to educate yourself, to equip yourself. And you have to seize these times as an opportunity for this. This is a reminder. This is a call. This is how I see it for myself. Do I know enough about the Holy Prophet? If I were asked these questions, do I know the answers to them? If not, well, I need to go back, hit the books, listen to lectures, think about it, see if I have more questions. And then, now that I have what it takes, I know enough about the topic, now I can actually go on the offensive. Now I have something to tell the world. And this is up to me. You can do it through an animation or a poster or a piece of theater, or you can do it through a book, or you can talk publicly. Whatever you think is the proper way 
to take that image of the Holy Prophet and whatever you discovered, if you think this is worth sharing to the world, especially after you see these constant attacks, how can you best defend him? Well, if you defend him, it's because you're convinced. So you went and you convinced yourself, you reached your own truth, now you have something to share with the world. Each to his, in their own way, in the best way that you know how, you need to share this back to the world. In that way, you are becoming the means when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we have elevated your reputation or your name, raised your name for you. When he talks to the Holy Prophet, then you are becoming one of those means for the elevation, for the raising of the name of the Holy Prophet in this world and inshallah in the next. Let's stop here uh, and take any questions, concerns, please text them to Haji Abu Abdullah. He is waiting for them. So questions, concerns, comments, anything here regarding the Holy Prophet or the topic of the afterlife and the argument or counter argument that we presented today from the Holy Quran. Go ahead. After the first discussion, just yeah. uh, I'm not sure if this is the, the like I don't know if this argument has been made, but like for the grass when it dies and comes back, is that like, sorry, say that again? So for grass or plants, they have life, right? But then they die and come back mm -hmm. over the seasons. Yeah. So could that be used also as a argument? Or? Yeah, so the question is, if we look, for instance, at plants, um, could that be used as an argument as we see the cycle of death and life constantly happening in nature? Could that be used as an argument for the resurrection? So not to give away the punchline for next week, uh, but that was the, let me just show you the next slide, if you can see it, and it's actually called plant life. <laughs> so absolutely, and the Holy Quran uses that as one of the phenomena. We have four big ones that we're going to be talking about, and there's more, uh, that this is phenomena happening around us that human beings should look at and see that if this is happening, then it's really not that unlikely that there is a resurrection and there's an afterlife because it's happening all around us all the time. Excellent question. Other questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Um, so about the, the last things that you were saying, um, when people attack the Holy Prophet and you know now they're drawing cartoons and stuff and they're saying this is our freedom to criticize our freedom of, uh, our freedom of speech, do we have a responsibility to say uh, no, you don't have this freedom, you know, this is a red line, you shouldn't do this because he's respected to us, he's respected to our community. Or um, should we like allow them to keep uh, having their right, uh, their right to free speech, but um, address, their, address what they're saying more, um, you know, defensively, intellectually, and through that way? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the question is when we see, for instance, people drawing cartoons and mocking the Holy Prophet under the guise and under the pretext of freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Should we be countering that claim itself or just letting it be and being a little bit more, let's say, uh, 
concentrating more on the substance and the intellectual discussion presenting the, the Holy Prophet in the best way possible. I don't think I can answer, there's no like a right and wrong, black and white answer to this. I think this is more of a, uh, it needs to be strategic discussions that take place and you have to think about what's the best way to do. Personally, right now, I think there's enough of a backlash concerning the freedom of speech and I think it's really being exposed to the world that there's a double standard and a double speech going on where there are things that are suddenly falling under the pretext and excuse of freedom of speech, you can attack those and there are others, you can't talk about them, it's taboo and you can get punished, it could be considered hate speech. So generally speaking, I think if society can move towards being more civilized in general, and this is part of a democratic society, where anything that is considered sacred to someone is not openly attacked and mocked, I think we would have a much more civilized world in which we're living. Okay? And this we need to talk about, inshallah, in depth when we, if we have one day a time to talk about what it means to live in secular societies and what are they supposed to be. And then you have the militant atheism of today. So you have people like, you know, the, the Sam Harris's of the world, they're not just atheists. They say that, basically, in, in two minutes, the logic they have is that they feel humanity without God, if humanity can put God aside and religion aside, humanity can move towards... Humanity can move towards... Uh, humanity can move a lot faster along the path of progress. What's holding humanity back is this constant, you know, superstitious, made-up beliefs about God and religion and so on and so forth. So the very militant atheists, and of course they, a lot of them are the ones feeding the secular version of society that is being promoted in certain places, and France perhaps being one of the most notorious of them. They think that they can go as far as eliminate those people. Okay, if you go back in their books, let's say Sam Harris, where he talks openly about this. We cannot afford, as a secular society, to keep having these types of people. And today, perhaps, these types of people, the ones that are most visible and more easy to identify, are the Muslims, because they are usually more practicing. And they're more overt, they're more clear, you know, the woman will wear the hijab and everybody will identify her. It's not only in your heart, in your, in your home. So there is kind of an unsaid confrontation that is constantly ongoing and you have to be aware of that. Okay, it, it would be naive to not take that into consideration. That's one. Another point related to this is, this is where you have to see what, where do you bring the most? There are people who need to decide. You can't put your energy everywhere. Where can you really put your energy? Is it in fight, fighting this wrong idea of freedom of expression and freedom of speech? Or is it in, we need both. Is it in presenting the truer, more genuine, more authentic version of who the Holy Prophet really was so that people like them don't have an excuse to take something that is distorted and not authentic and using that as 
the image of your Prophet. And this is where the problem really stems from. We all know that the issue is they're not making stuff up completely. They are going back into certain pieces of literature, certain parts of our history and saying, you know, it says the Holy Prophet did this or did that. We have a lot of work to do as Muslims to go through this, the things that need to be contextualized, we need to contextualize them. Say, if this happened, it's because of this, this and that. The things that did not happen, we need to say this did not happen. This was made up history. Someone fabricated this because of X, Y, and Z. So if you go back, let's say, to the time of the Abbasids, the time of the Ottomans, the times of, and so on and so forth, you can see why certain things were created, why certain things were made up to distort the image of the Holy Prophet. And who did what? And anyone who wants to be objective and scientific and meticulous, they can do that work. A historian can go back and see in, especially if you go back in our history, in Islamic history, we have the benefit, we have the advantage in Islamic history of having Islam. When something is said, we always know who said it. We ask, who, did, who said this? Are they a known liar? Are they authentic when they say? Are they trustworthy or not? If they are, great, now I can look at the substance of what they said. If they're not already, I can dismiss it and say, well, they are a known fabricator. They were paid by so-and-so to fabricate, you know, 10, 15, 30,000 ahadith in certain cases. That's, that was their job, to write ahadith that are fake, some scholars. So this, this needs to be done so that we publish more books and make more documentaries and expose this to the world so that it closes that door completely. And if anyone comes and says, Holy Prophet did this, and he fought that, and he killed so-and-so. Say, no, that did not happen. You're referring to this, everybody knows. This is a fabrication, this did not happen, and that's not authentic, and no one considers that as part of history. I think we need both. I don't know if I answered your question or not, but uh, yeah. There was a question that came in that says, the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Safat says, Is it from jinn? No, it was not. it's not from the jinn. Al-Qur'ana, in this case, is not the jinn. Um, so the shayateen is a possibility that al-qareen in the Holy Quran, the, the reference could be uh, a reference to the devil that accompanies you, that is your own devil, or most likely in this case, it is a reference to uh, the person who is uh, was with you as a companion, associate, friend in this world. Uh, and there are certain narrations that explain you know, why those verses were revealed and they talk about certain people. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's a whole discussion about how the Holy Quran uses the word Tareen. Um, so it's basically, uh, you know, uh, an association, a relationship of association between you and another entity. And inshallah, we can get back to, uh, we can get into more details regarding this, uh, this tafsir of these specific verses, inshallah. Um, we, can, we can get back to it. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Inshallah, we'll get back to it for Surah Al-Safat. And nothing else? Anything else here?
I had a comment. Yeah. When when Richard Dawkins and so, sometimes he says, if I see a clear sign uh, of God, it's more probable it's more probable that I'm hallucinating than or that that I'm seeing things. Yeah. Then uh, you know God actually exists mm-hmm. and. It's kind of like when the prophet used to show clear signs to people and they used to say it's magic or we're hallucinating, we're hallucinating. except that them, um, beforehand they used to say if we see a sign then we'll believe, but Richard Dawkins from the beginning he says whatever I see doesn't matter, most likely I'm hallucinating and I will never believe. Yeah. So it's just kind of a parallel. It's a, it's a very good point, so someone like Richard Dawkins who says you know even if I see a sign from God I'm going to interpret that as I'm hallucinating, and it's an excellent point you're making. This is where you distinguish very clearly between what we are supposed to call science and what we call scientism. Science is supposed to be about finding the truth. And the way it works, and this requires a series of lectures, inshallah, one day we, it's a very important topic, the philosophy of science, how science is built. Science is built on the idea that you have an experience of the world. You need to interpret, you need to make sense of the world, so you come up with a hypothesis. And then you test the hypothesis to see, is it good or not? Sometimes it's only partly good. Sometimes it's entirely bad. The paradigm is wrong. Okay, Thomas Kuhn and and others have talked about the paradigm shifts. This is when you go from the physics of Aristotle to the physics of Newton. The whole paradigm was wrong. But in any case, science is supposed to be about, I have an experience of the world, I need to make sense of it. So I have to come up with a hypothesis that I can test and corroborate through evidence or refute through evidence. And the more there is an explanatory power behind the hypothesis, the more people in the scientific community are going to accept it. So the more, let's say I have 100 phenomena I'm trying to understand. Examples like, you know, the the way the planets move and the way the, the water moves on Earth and, and, and. Okay, so I have 100 phenomena I'm trying to explain. The hypothesis I came up with explains 40 of them. You came up with a hypothesis that explains 70 of them. You have more... Uh, explanatory power than my hypothesis. So, with time, the scientific community is going to accept yours, and mine is going to be put on the side. That's generally how science works. Until someone comes up with a better hypothesis that explains more. And some think that, that some thinkers think that this happens all the time gradually, and others think that there are big jumps, and this is not happening all the time. These are two big schools of thought. Anyways. If this is science, then you cannot say, before I go in, these are my rules. But this is what has happened. So the entirely materialist scientists, they now believe in scientism. They say, science is ABC. This is not proven. They just close the door on anything else. They have reduced science to those things. So no matter what you say, So one of those things is, the world is only made up of matter. That's one of their axioms. Okay, so something that you can't prove, you take for granted. It's an axiom. One of their axioms is, the world is made up of matter and only matter. 
It doesn't matter what you come up with. Of course, he's going to say, yeah, I'm hallucinating. And in fact, as we saw, they don't even think that you have free will or consciousness to be able to properly assess all of this in any case. So, bottom line is, yes, the door is completely closed, and this is where, when those people say that, it's, okay, well, if you've decided beforehand, don't call that science. This is not science. Today, that's the biggest problem that science has, is that some people follow science, but a lot of people are following scientism, making science into an ideology and a religion, and they've already decided what goes in, and the rest is gibberish. It's nonsensical. If you say God, that's not part of the world that we live in, so it doesn't mean anything. Okay, so excellent point. But yeah. Yeah, so the door is closed, and to me it's a reminder. It's just like those, the verse that, uh, like the Holy Quran says, they have sworn by Allah who saw the oaths. يَحْرِفُونَ بِاللَّهِ there is no, no matter what you will bring, I have already sworn, I have closed the door on that, that this is not a possibility. Okay, well then, there's no discussion here. You're not interested in the truth. Yeah. Other questions, concerns, comments? We're good? Okay.